minute early, but that's okay. Can everybody, if you haven't sat down yet, or even if you have sat down, sit closer to the front. That's helpful to me. That way I can see you a little bit better. But otherwise, good morning. Welcome to Sunday School. We're back in Daniel today. The title for our class is Visions from God. Last week, we investigated the book of Esther, and we saw two main principles from that book. That God moves invisibly and providentially to accomplish his amazing purposes. And we saw that God is in the business of accomplishing reversals. At the right time, the humble will be exalted and the proud will be cast down. Those who mourn now will laugh, while those who laugh now will mourn. And those who give up their lives for Christ and for the gospel, they will save their lives. While those who cling to their lives in this world will both lose their lives in this world and lose them in eternity. So we see that concept throughout the scriptures. The events of Esther take place after the reigns of Cyrus and Darius. But for today's lesson, we're going back in time, stepping back chronologically to the reigns of Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. This time in Daniel, we're focusing on the visions given to Daniel by God. What were these visions? Why did God give them to Daniel? Have the prophetic elements of these visions been fulfilled today? And why are these visions to Daniel important for us? We're going to consider these questions as we focus on three, well, kind of like two and a half visions in Daniel. Here's our outline. We'll focus on the visions in Daniel 2 and Daniel 7. We'll mention a little bit about the vision in Daniel 8, and then we'll consider application for ourselves. This is a lot of material to cover, and we're not even dealing with the visions in Daniel 9 and Daniel 11. Unfortunately, don't have time for those chapters today, but I trust that you've been hearing some about those passages, especially Daniel 9, from Pastor Bobby's recent preaching on the end times. But we're going to focus on Daniel 2 and 7 and a little bit of 8 today. Let's pray before we continue. Pray with me. Lord God, you are the great God. All knowledge and wisdom is, is with you, and yet you, in your great sovereignty, have decided to share some of that knowledge with your people via the prophet Daniel but I pray that we'd be built up by it, that we'd be equipped, that we would apply it, Lord. Your spirit would accomplish that. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's look at Daniel's first vision in Daniel 2. Please open your Bibles to Daniel 2. Daniel 2, we're going to read verses 19 to 49. This is page 882 in the Pew Bible. Daniel's book appears in the Old Testament after Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. Let's reestablish the context of our passage. At the beginning of Daniel 2, Nebuchadnezzar is in the second year of his reign. Remember, he's the king of Babylon. And he has a troubling dream. He demands for his wise men to interpret the dream for him. But, as many of you know, what does Nebuchadnezzar refuse to tell any of the wise men? He refuses to tell him what the dream was. Seeking proof of the wise men's abilities, he wants the wise men to tell the king both the dream, what was the dream, and the interpretation of the dream. But the wise men insist to the king that this is an impossible task. No one has ever done this. No one can do this. Only the gods who do not dwell on earth could do such a thing for the king. Convinced by this answer of the wise men's deception, Nebuchadnezzar orders all of the wise men and counselors of Babylon to be killed. Now Daniel and his friends are considered to be wise men, or wise men in training. And so when the executioners come to Daniel, he learns of the situation and asks for a little time to answer the king's request. He's granted this time, and Daniel asks his friends, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, whom we'd met before, to all pray to God for compassion and for the revelation of this mystery that the king has requested. Let's pick up the narrative in verse 19 of Daniel 2, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. Daniel 2, verse 19. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel said, Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. 
It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and power. Even now you have made known to me what we requested of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and spoke to him as follows. Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me into the king's presence, and I will declare the interpretation to the king. Then Arioch hurriedly brought Daniel into the king's presence and spoke to him as follows. I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can make the interpretation known to the king. The king said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered before the king and said, As for the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. This was your dream, and the visions in your mind while on your bed. As for you, O king, while on your bed, your thoughts turn to what would take place in the future. And he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what will take place. But as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me more than in any other living man, but for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king, and that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue. That statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. The head of that statue was made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away, so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain, and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell its interpretation before the king. You, O king, are the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them all. You are the head of gold. After you, there will arise another kingdom inferior to you, then another third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. Then there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things. So, like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. In that you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom, but it, it will have in it the toughness of iron, inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. As the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. And as much as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and did homage to Daniel and gave orders to present to him an offering and fragrant incense. The king answered Daniel and said, Surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, since you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel made request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the administration of the province of Babylon, while Daniel was at the king's court. Okay, 
Pardon me, just a second. All right, let's observe this section. Kind of a long section. Notice Daniel's immediate response to learning the king's dream. He gives praise and thanks to God. But what two qualities of God does Daniel highlight in his praise? What's one of the qualities? His wisdom, the Lord's wisdom. And not only that the Lord is wise, but that he gives wisdom. He is the revealer of mysteries. What else? His power, right? His power and his wisdom. Those are the two things that Daniel highlights. God is the one who gives or takes away kingdoms. And he's the one who gives wisdom and reveals secret things. When Nebuchadnezzar asks if Daniel can make known the dream and its interpretation, notice Daniel's response. Daniel confesses no man on earth could give the king what he wanted, but there is a God who can, and he is a God who reveals mysteries. Daniel uses that phrase twice. Daniel then confesses that the only reason Daniel knows the answer is because God chose to reveal to Nebuchadnezzar, via Daniel, the mystery of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. So Daniel wants to make sure that Nebuchadnezzar understands this revelation did not come due to any innate wisdom in Daniel. Daniel then recapitulates Nebuchadnezzar's dream for Nebuchadnezzar. The king saw a great and awesome statue with a head of gold, chest and arms of silver, belly and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, and feet partly of iron and partly of clay. By the way, basic question here, but feet normally have how many toes? Ten toes, yes, normally. And toes are mentioned in verse 42 of this chapter. That might be important later on. Then a stone cut without hands struck the feet, destroying them and crushing the rest of the statue so completely, so completely that not a trace of the statue remains after the wind blows and carries away the debris. Then the uncut stone became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Daniel interprets the king for Nebuchadnezzar, interprets the dream for Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is the king of kings, exercising dominion over all. He is the head of gold. Though, what does Daniel emphasize to Nebuchadnezzar about Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom? It says, you are the king of kings, you have the dominion, but where did it come from? Well, it does say that. Eventually, another kingdom will arise. But even when talking about Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, he says something about it. That's right. God has given it to you. God gave you this kingdom. So he's emphasizing that to Nebuchadnezzar right away. You are the head of gold, but remember, God gave you this kingdom. <clears throat> but then, as uh, Rob said, there's another kingdom that comes. The silver and bronze sections of the statue are kingdoms that will come after Nebuchadnezzar, being inferior, though also ruling over the whole earth. The iron legs are a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, crushing the other kingdoms and breaking them in pieces. The feet and toes are a divided kingdom. It's not entirely clear whether they're an, another kingdom after the iron one or if it's a, a, a kind of a continuation of the iron kingdom. They're partly strong like iron, partly brittle like clay. It says the seed of men will have this iron-clay combination within them, but they will not really adhere to one another. Then there's a final kingdom set up by God that will never be destroyed. And it crushes and puts an end to the other kingdoms. But that kingdom itself will last forever. Daniel concludes the revelation by reasserting the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true and its interpretation trustworthy. Now notice how Nebuchadnezzar reacts. He does homage to Daniel. He actually presents an offering and incense to Daniel. Must have been a little weird. He promotes Daniel, gives Daniel gifts, and he makes Daniel ruler of the province of Babylon. And at Daniel's request, he puts Daniel's friends into positions in Babylon under Daniel. But notice also, what does the king declare about God? He says, your God is a God of gods, Lord of kings, and revealer of mysteries. Now, having made these observations, we come to the interpretation step. But a lot of our interpretation has already been done for us because... 
God, via Daniel, has interpreted the dream for us. We don't have to figure out, oh, what does this dream mean? It's a good thing, too, because I don't think we would come up with the answer. God has already provided it. Still, we can ask a few questions, interpretation-wise. Why does Daniel tell us about how all the wise men could not fulfill the king's request? Why mention that? Yes, I see that hand. Yeah, that's right. It's a definite contrast between the divine ability and the human ability. None of the wise men on earth are able to even venture an interpretation or uh, a claim for about the dream. None of the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel, when he's asked whether he can make known the dream, he says, it's not in me. It's not as if I, by my manly power or wisdom, can give you the interpretation or tell you the dream. But God can. There is a God who can. So he mentions all that to help us see the contrast between the power and wisdom of God and the power and wisdom of man. Consider the phrase most repeated in this section about God and Nebuchadnezzar's confession at the end of the chapter. What clearly does Daniel want his audience, those who are reading or hearing this book, what does he want them to understand about God? He is the one true God. He's unique among those that are claimed to be gods. But what particularly is highlighted about Yahweh? What's the phrase that kept getting repeated? Multiple times, God is said to be the revealer of mysteries. Now, his power is emphasized, too, that he's the giver of kingdoms and he gave the kingdom to Nebuchadnezzar. But three or four times in this passage it says that God reveals the secret things or he's a revealer of mysteries. Daniel wants his audience to understand God is the one with all power and knowledge. And yet he has chosen to reveal some of that knowledge to men via his prophets, via his prophet Daniel and certainly the other prophets in the past. God is the revealer of mysteries. Now, aside from the head of gold, the precise identities of the other kingdoms in this vision are not revealed. However, the last kingdom is said to be eternal and set up by God. Consider the prophecies that we've already seen from Isaiah, Jeremiah, and others, people who came before Daniel. What would the Jews of Daniel's time have understood this kingdom to be? Whose kingdom? Say that again. Which king? Okay, I think they would have definitely connected it with an earthly king. We know that it is divine. There's that detail about it being an uncut stone. Not It hasn't been fashioned by human hands. It has a divine origin. It's, it's said to be the kingdom of God. And yet we've already seen from Jeremiah and Isaiah and Micah and uh, Hosea that there's going to be a ruler from Israel that's going to come. There's going to be a ruler that's going to actually restore the kingdom of Israel. What Isaiah calls the servant and calls um, other terms, but this is what we would call, or um, people in the Old Testament would call the Messiah, the anointed one. They, they would be connecting this with Messiah's kingdom. I think it's right to do so. This final kingdom is connected with Messiah. Now, this is not the only vision in the book of Daniel, but as you'll see, it's an important foundation for what we see in the rest of Daniel. A lot of Daniel is all about the power of God, being able to protect his own or to humble kings, but also in God revealing mysteries. And we see a number of other mysteries revealed, a number of other visions revealed in Daniel. And we're going to go look at the second one now. Turn over to Daniel 7. Actually, I'll keep the slide hidden for just a second. Daniel 7. We're going to read through the entire chapter. This is many years later. 
This is still under a ruler of Babylon, but this is Belshazzar, who was co-ruler of Babylon with Nabonidus in the years before Babylon's fall. So Daniel 7, we're going to read the whole chapter. Starting verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. Then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle, kept looking until its wings were plucked, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind also was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, resembling a bear, and it was raised up on one side and had three ribs, and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. After this, I kept looking, and behold, another one, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth uttering great boasts. I kept looking, until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames, its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat, and the books were opened. Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain, and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me, and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. I approached one of those who were standing by and began asking him the exact meaning of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. These great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth. But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, for all ages to come. Then I desired to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron and its claws of bronze, and which devoured, crushed, and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and the meaning of the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn which came up, and before which three of them fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth uttering great boasts, and which was larger in appearance than its associates. I kept looking, and that horn was waging war with the saints, and overpowering them, until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one, and the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. Thus he said, The fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms, and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings will arise, and another will arise after them, and he will be different from the previous ones, and will subdue three kings. He will speak out against the Most High, and wear down the saints of the Highest One, and he will intend to make alterations in times and in law, and they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court will sit for judgment, and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven 
will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. At this point, the revelation ended. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarming me, and my face grew pale. But I kept the matter to myself. All right, let's observe this section. In this night vision, Daniel sees four beasts coming up out of the water. The first is a winged lion, whose wings are plucked off, and who then stands on his hind legs and thinks like a man. The second resembles a bear, though it is raised up on one side and has three ribs in its teeth. The three ribs tell the bear-like creature to devour much meat. The third beast appeared like a leopard with four wings on its back and four heads. Dominion was given to this beast. The fourth beast is not described in the likeness of any earthly creature. But notice what we do here about this beast. It is dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong. Notice the repeated emphasis in those terms. It has large iron teeth. Verse 19 tells us it has claws of bronze. It devours and crushes and tramples the remainder with its feet. It's different than all the other beasts, and it has ten horns. Daniel also notices that another horn comes up between the ten on this beast and uproots three of them, becoming great in size. This horn has the eyes of a man and, the, and a mouth uttering great boasts. Verse 21 says that the horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them. Daniel then sees the glorious Ancient of Days. That's a title for God. Taking his seat on a blazing throne with burning wheels. A river of fire comes forth from this throne, while myriads attend the Ancient of Days. There's also mention of a court and open books. And meanwhile, the horn continues to boast until the terrifying beast is slain. Its body is destroyed and given to the burning fire. And verse 22 says, The Ancient of Days comes and passes judgment in favor of the saints of the Highest One, delivering them from the horn and giving the saints possession of the kingdom. The rest of the beasts lose their dominion, but are granted life for an appointed period of time. And then Daniel sees one like a son of man coming on the clouds of heaven and presenting himself before the Ancient of Days. To this son of man is given kingdom, glory, and dominion over all peoples. The kingdom is everlasting and will never be destroyed. Daniel then hears the interpretation. The four beasts represent four kings. Arising, or four kings arising from the earth, but he also hears that an eternal kingdom, that the eternal kingdom is the one that belongs to the saints of the highest one. Desiring to know more about the fourth beast, Daniel learns that the fourth beast is a fourth kingdom devouring the whole earth. The ten horns are ten kings. The little horn is another king who comes later and subdues three kings. This horn speaks against the Most High, alters time and law, wears down the saints, and who are, the saints are given into his hand for time, times, and half a time. We could add this up to three and a half times. A court will sit and will take away the horn's dominion, annihilate it, and destroy it forever. And then we hear again, dominion and greatness will be given to the saints of the highest one, and their kingdom will have complete dominion and will last forever. And then notice the effects of all this on Daniel. He's greatly alarmed and his face grows pale. All right, we've made these observations. Let's try to interpret. You should notice a rough parallel between the vision in this chapter and the vision in chapter 2. The head of gold, that was Babylon, is equivalent to the winged lion. The silver torso and arms to the bear raised up on one side. The bronze belly and thighs to the winged leopard with four heads. The iron legs to the last destructive beast with the iron teeth. The iron and clay feet, having ten toes, roughly correspond also to the last beast with its ten horns and its later little horn. And just as the stone strikes the statue and fills the earth in chapter 2, so the burning Ancient of Days destroys the little horn, destroys the beast, and gives dominion to the saints. Now, if the winged lion is Babylon, what is this about plucked wings and the mind of a man? Now, before we answer that question, let's note that something involving the mind of the king of Babylon takes place in Daniel 4. What happened to the king of Babylon? Yes. 
Right. So in Daniel 4, Nebuchadnezzar, he's first warned, but doesn't heed the warning. He becomes very prideful. He boasts in his own ability to have generated the kingdom and all its glory. And then God says, I'm going to drive you out from men, make your mind like a beast, and you'll be in the, the wilderness for seven times or seven years. And it's only after that time that God gives him his mind back and he acknowledges all kingship comes from God. God is the king of kings and he bestows the kingdom on whomever he will. And then Nebuchadnezzar is reinstalled as king and he receives glory again. So this would be in the background of Daniel 7. So the audience, if you're thinking, okay, this is Babylon, what's this whole thing about a mind being given to it? Probably refers back to Daniel 4 and what happens to Nebuchadnezzar. Now, what do the three ribs represent? The three ribs of the second beast that call out for conquest. Maybe a little bit more difficult question. We don't have many clues to help us interpret, except that they call out for conquest and they're in the mouth of the bear. So probably they represent three kings or three kingdoms that are destroyed by the bear. So we can't say too much about that. Rob, did you want to say something? Yeah. Uh, we'll get to uh, what kingdom the bear represents, but yeah, what's your question? Is that the only question? Okay, yeah. I, I see. I, we're going to talk about Persia a little bit later on, but just so that we have the understanding that Daniel's audience would have understood from this passage and from Daniel 2, we couldn't say the identity of this kingdom. We just know that it's going to come after Babylon. Well, I guess actually a little bit earlier in Daniel, we do know that Persia comes next. So it would make sense to say that this is Persia. But uh, we'll get to the precise identity of these kingdoms a little bit later. Anyways, we have these ribs. They probably represent conquered kings or kingdoms. We also learn extra information about the fourth, fourth and maybe fifth kingdom from Daniel, from Daniel 2 and Daniel 7. A boastful ruler comes from this kingdom who will blaspheme God and make war against the saints or literally against the holy or the holy ones. But this blasphemy and war are put to an end by God who gives complete and eternal dominion to the Son of Man. Now, in Old Testament terms, who is the Son of Man? Well, yes, we know that in New Testament terms, but in the Old Testament, we would understand this to be the Messiah. That's what Christ means, right? This is the Messiah. This is the coming King of Israel. And certainly, they'd be connecting this term with that person. And he's given the kingdom. And it's never to end. So we have these two different visions. And in them, God reveals there will be a succession of earthly kingdoms culminating with their destruction and the removal of all dominions of men and the replacement of those dominions with the kingdom of God, ruled by God's Messiah and filled with God's saints. Now, why would this message matter to the people to whom Daniel writes? Exiles who have just returned or are just about to return to Israel. Why would this message matter to them? What would they understand about themselves? Right. God has not abandoned Israel. He's not done with Israel. And this is something that we've emphasized in this quarter. These different prophets are all making that theme known. God's not done with Israel. You've been taken into exile, but God's not done. In fact, everything is proceeding on schedule, as it were. Everything's unfolding according to plan. There's this kingdom in, that's ruling now, but then this other kingdom will come, then this other kingdom will come. But ultimately... It's God's kingdom that will come. It will subdue all the other kingdoms. And God's kingdom, connected with Israel's kingdom, will be on the earth, and it will last forever. This would be encouraging. This would be, um, what's the word? This would be motivating to say, ah, I need to keep following after God. I need to keep obeying him because his kingdom will come. We haven't lost the kingdom. We're still God's people, and the kingdom will come. 
God is still going to reign on the earth. And he's going to give the kingdom to the saints, to the holy ones. And so if I continue to follow after the Lord, I can be part of that kingdom. So this would encourage the people to to remain faithful to the Lord and to not feel like God had abandoned them. God's plan for Israel and for the world was proceeding on schedule. Now, we alluded to this before, but we should we could ask, did Daniel know the precise identity of the coming kingdoms before the end? Well, some of them he did. He would have known that the second kingdom was Persia because he was alive when the Persians took over Babylon, as some of the earlier chapters of Daniel tell us. Belshazzar, uh, he's deposed, and uh, Darius comes in. Some people think Darius is another name for Cyrus there. So he would have seen that in his lifetime, but it's not just from that. Daniel 8 actually gives us more information on these first two visions. We don't have time to look at Daniel 8, but I'll just tell you a little bit about it. Daniel 8 describes the next two kingdoms to succeed Babylon. One kingdom is represented by a ram that has one horn bigger than the other, and then the next kingdom is represented by a goat that has one prominent horn, which breaks and then is replaced by four horns. What are these two kingdoms? Well, God tells Daniel specifically, Daniel 8, verses 20 to 22. God says, The ram which you saw with the two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece, and the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. The broken horn and the four horns that arose in its place represent four kingdoms which will arise from his nation, although not with his power. Now, this is a pretty clear and specific prophecy. The next kingdom to gain extended dominion after Babylon is the kingdom of Media and Persia. And then after them will be the Greeks, but their kingdom will be split into four. So we can combine these three visions together. We have Daniel 2, Daniel 7, and Daniel 8. The golden head is the winged lion, which is Babylon. The silver arms and chest is the lopsided bear, which is the lopsided ram, which is Media and Persia. The bronze belly and thighs is the four-winged and four-headed leopard, which is the goat, which has one, and then four horns, which is Greece. So these visions build on one another. They provide more specific information as the visions go along. So it's like God established a foundation in Daniel 2, but then revealed more to Daniel as time went on. So how did all this play out historically? Did Media and Persia really come next? Did Greece really come next? Did it really split into four kingdoms? Well, actually, yes. Daniel's three visions were given approximately 604 to 550 BC, so from Nebuchadnezzar's reign to Belshazzar's reign. Then the Medo-Persians under Cyrus conquered the Babylonians around 538 BC, so they were indeed the next kingdom. And then the Greeks under Alexander conquered the Medo-Persian Empire around 330 BC. So this was the one prominent horn. But Alexander soon died in 323 BC, and his kingdom was split apart under his generals and governors, who soon warred with each other for control. Now, the specific breakdown of Alexander's kingdom is debated. In fact, historically, the political boundaries kept changing, and certain kings or certain leaders rose and fell, or allied, or broke the alliances. Some people claim that there were more than four primary successors to Alexander. But the most common breakdown among biblical commentators is that there were four main kingdoms. And I'll show you a map. Macedonia, Pergamum, Seleucia, and Ptolemaic Egypt. So Macedonia would be over here in this light green. Pergamum, Pergamum and Thrace would be this orange section here. Here's Seleucia. This is kind of the big one. It emerges as the most powerful one, the yellow over here on the right. And then Ptolemaic Egypt, the blue down here. So those would be the the four kingdoms, the four heads, and the four horns referred to by Daniel. Historians call these the diadochi, or the successor states. That's the Greek term. It comes from the Greek term for successors. Now, who conquered the Greek kingdoms? Well, from Daniel, we wouldn't know the identity of the kingdom. It just says that another kingdom will come, and it will be terrifying. But historically, the kingdom was Rome. The Roman Republic and later the Roman Empire was like nothing before it. 
Rome completely shattered every kingdom and empire that bordered the Mediterranean Sea. All the Greek kingdoms and many others were conquered and absorbed by the Romans by 30 BC. And the Roman Empire lasted a long time. If we consider that even when the city of Rome fell to barbarians, that the Eastern Roman Empire continued to exist, then the empire, the Roman Empire, lasted until 1453 AD. So 1,500 years after they had almost complete dominion of the Mediterranean. It was the Muslim Ottoman Turks who officially ended the Roman Empire in 1453 when they took over Constantinople, which was renamed Istanbul. So we do see historically how this has played out. But what about the feet of iron mixed with clay, the ten horns, and the kingdom of the blasphemous little horn? Have we seen this part fulfilled historically? Well, there are a lot of opinions on this. Certainly, we've seen something like it. Someone who fulfills other parts of Daniel 8, which we didn't look at, but which sounds similar to what we read in Daniel 7. One of the latter Seleucid kings, Antiochus IV Epiphanes, did exalt himself to divine status. He forbid sacrifice in Israel. He confiscated and burned all copies of Israel's law that he could find, and he defiled the temple. He basically tried to force Greek culture and Greek religion on the Jews. Antiochus provoked a revolt by doing this, the Maccabean Revolt of 167 BC, which was successful and established a new Jewish state, Jewish state in Israel in 160 BC. This Jewish state continued to expand until it was beset by civil wars and made a client kingdom of Rome in 63 BC. So that's why when the Jews talk about in the New Testament, we, we're independent. We've never been under subjection to anybody. In a way, they're true. They were a kingdom under Rome. They were a client kingdom. So we have Antiochus IV Epiphanes. And we also have various Roman emperors later who exalted themselves to be godlike or divine. And they, too, persecuted Jews and Christians and even sought to take away their scriptures. But have we seen the total fulfillment of this vision? That the, the toes, the iron and clay toes, or the, the horn that exalted itself, it was destroyed by God and replaced with the Messianic kingdom. Now, certainly we've never seen that. We've never seen the final blasphemous king removed and then the everlasting dominion set up in its place. So therefore, we must conclude that part of Daniel's visions have not yet been fulfilled. Perhaps similar sounding sections in Daniel 8 or Daniel 11 have been fulfilled by Antiochus or maybe Roman emperor. But I don't think we've seen everything. And yet, this should not be that surprising to us, because as we've gone along today, you probably noticed that a lot of the language that we've read in Daniel is connected with or appears again in the final book of the Bible. The Apostle John's revelation. So we don't really have time to explore those points, but that's something for us to keep in the back of our minds. Now again, what is the point of all these visions to Daniel and through him to the Jewish exiles? All it is to reiterate to God's people that God is in control and that his plans are being worked out among the nations. And that the future establishment of Messiah, the future establishment of Messiah's perfectly powerful and just kingdom on the earth will come to pass. The other kingdoms came, as God foretold. So will Christ's, so will the Messiah's, so will the one belonging to the saints. And in that day, God's persecuted holy ones will be vindicated, while those who commit evil will be judged and destroyed. Questions or comments about what we've heard today? Yeah, Rob. Yes. Mm -hmm. That's a really good question, Rob. Is one of the kings of the Ten Horns alive today, or has that played out historically? Can we identify the Ten Kings? I'm sure there's a lot of debate about that. I don't know if there's a clear answer to that question. I know that certainly there's connection to Revelation. You may remember the beast in Revelation is also said to have 10 horns and I think a, an extra horn. So it is connected with the end. 
it is connected with the last kingdom on the earth. I doubt whether then we've seen or are seeing those 10 horns right now, but certainly they are connected with the, with the end of the, the end of the earthly kingdoms. That's a good question. Any other questions? Yes. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Okay, thanks for mentioning that, Bill. So you mentioned that at the end of the Roman Empire, Matthew Henry says that it broke down into 10 different kingdoms and that these kingdoms were iron and clay because there was uh, intermarriage and uh, the kingdom became weaker through that intermarriage, even though it was trying to become stronger. It is interesting that there does, I was thinking a little bit about the, the end of the Western Roman Empire anyways, where there is an increasing, sometimes called barbarization or Germanization of the Roman Empire, where people outside the empire are being brought in, given positions of prominence, or being allowed to settle into the empire. But did the Roman Empire really break down into ten kingdoms? And we're only talking about the Western Roman Empire. I mean, the Eastern Roman Empire, which called itself the Roman Empire, and in a sense was the Roman Empire, even though they eventually started speaking Greek and not Latin, it lasted until 1453. So I don't know if 476 and the fall of the Western Roman Empire really fits into the, into the mold given to us by Daniel. Now, there are plenty of people who will say, okay, we have a near fulfillment and we have a far fulfillment. That's, that's something that we see with a number of Old Testament passages. That's a way that people will interpret, just like we saw with Isaiah 7 when it comes to the prophecy of the virgin birth. They say, was this about um, Isaiah's son in the days of that king of Israel, or was it about the Messiah many years later? Well, many people would say it's about both. There's the near fulfillment and there's the far fulfillment. My personal view is that I'm very hesitant to call something a near fulfillment unless it perfectly fulfills whatever the prophecy said. This is actually something emphasized to me in one of my seminary classes. I'm actually taking one on the second half of the Old Testament right now. And my professor has made the point of saying a specific fulfillment needs to be totally fulfilled if it's actually fulfilled. There is a concept of foreshadowing, what we might call typology, types, where God appears to fulfill something like the prophecy, or it seems to allow something like the prophecy to happen, or where I think what we have in Isaiah, where in Isaiah 7 and 8, where you had the one prophecy given about the Messiah, and then in Isaiah 8, you have a similar sounding prophecy that is not given about the Messiah, but is given for Isaiah's own day. I think we do have that where that similar sounding prophecy is totally fulfilled, but the original is not. I would stop short of saying there's a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. I would say there is something that looks, that foreshadows the far fulfillment, the actual fulfillment of the prophecy. Um, but that, that prophecy isn't actually fulfilled until everything that it says, or everything that the, the prophecy is given, the details of that prophecy are fulfilled by by one who is to come. Now, I recognize there's a lot of debate about that, but that's that's my view. Other questions? Yes, in the back, uh, far back. Yeah, hey, Steve. Right. Um, I think that's okay. Just repeat your comment. So if there's a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment, that might be confusing to the people today because if, if they see the near one, then they won't be expecting another one. Right. Uh, I, I think that's what you're getting at. And I, 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 I agree. I think that's why I don't want to use the term fulfillment. I think we want to pay close attention to the specifics of the prophecies and if one prophecy says certain things and those are fulfilled, then yes, that's fulfilled. That's a near fulfillment. But if there's another prophecy that sounds like it and that's not totally fulfilled, then we can't say that it was fulfilled. And that way, I think we can prevent, and hopefully the people at the time would have prevented confusion as to what was fulfilled and what wasn't fulfilled. Because certainly that would be 
that would raise some questions about the communication abilities of God. If he said on the one hand, all right, there's this prophecy that's going to happen and it's totally fulfilled. But then later on, he's like, no, 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 it wasn't totally fulfilled. Even though you, you thought it was all fulfilled and you saw the specifics of that, it wasn't totally fulfilled. I think that would be confusing. So I, that's why I'm trying to make the distinction between what is actually fulfilled and what just foreshadows or looks like the actual fulfillment. But that's a good point you raised, Steve. Uh, there was another hand. Yes. Yeah, let me let me try and say something. Uh, you're asking about what about the toes and what exactly they mean as eschatologically. What what can we discern about this final kingdom and is it a federation of ten states? Or... There's a lot we don't know about this. Certainly, I the reason I pointed out that there are ten toes is because I think it connects with the ten horns of Daniel seven, and that connects with the ten horns we see of the final beast in Revelation, and uh, even in Revelation it talks about it being. I believe, 10 kings, and they give their power to the beast. Now, what precisely is the nature of their federation? Why is it that they're said to adhere and yet not adhere to one another? I don't know if we can really say. I do know that we should really be cautious against what's sometimes called newspaper exegesis, where we're looking at present historical events and being like, aha, here it is. This is here's the 10 toes, or the European Union is the 10 toes, or, um, you know, the Muslims, they're... They're the final kingdom that's going to be just, or, you know, um, not the Muslims, but Islamic State or um, some sort of Arabic empire or Muslim empire is the is the one that's going to be destroyed by the uncut stone. There have been plenty of people who've tried to do that in the past, and they've been wrong. We, I don't know if we have enough evidence to really say. Could the ten toes and the iron mixed with clay represent a revived Roman empire of some kind? I think there's some possibility of that because... There's not that much distinction between the fourth kingdom, the iron kingdom, which appears to be historically Rome, and the fifth kingdom, or maybe a continuation of the, the fourth kingdom, the iron mixed with clay. I think it's significant that Daniel 7 doesn't give five beasts, it gives four beasts, and the fourth one has a little horn that comes out of it. And, and it's connected with, it seems to be connected with whatever the previous empire was represented by that fourth beast. So all that to say... I don't know if we can say with great certainty the nature of this last kingdom, except that it will be, it will have great dominion, it will have terrifying power, and it will have a blasphemous ruler. And we can fill in some of those details with what we see in Revelation. One thing that you may have noticed, and I do think this is interesting, is that the description of the four beasts in Daniel 7, they are all part of the beast in Revelation 13. So whenever John sees the beast coming up out of the sea, he notices that it has the body of a leopard, the feet of a bear. I can't remember if it's the head or the tail of a lion or something like that. And then I think it has various horns. And those are the three animals that are used in Daniel to describe the successive kingdoms. What is the significance of that? Not entirely sure, but it does sound like the final kingdom represented by the beast in Revelation either has the uh, the strengths of all the previous kingdoms, or is like the culmination of every earthly kingdom. Whatever great earthly kingdom was there on the earth, which Daniel has told us about, the final kingdom is going to be the culmination of that. So certainly lots, lots here that we could look more into. Other questions? Yeah, Rob. Sure. Yeah, 
Yeah, that is interesting. Though we should note that the revived Jewish state after the Maccabean revolt did have a decent amount of power. They started from their small little nucleus around Jerusalem, and they they conquered most of what was traditionally their land. They conquered the northern region, Samaria. They conquered Edom to the south. That's how the Edomians or the Edomites kind of got brought into to Israel. And they conquered a little bit to the, uh, I guess from your view, conquered a little bit to the east. They did reestablish a kingdom that was the what's called the Hasmonean dynasty. But even that did not last. It comes under the uh, the dominion of Rome, and eventually Rome has to take it away. And the biblical writers have stressed, or definitely stressed, the, the greatness of Solomon's kingdom, Solomon's time, and a little bit also David's time. And those sound a little bit like the fulfillment of the promises that God had previously given to Israel about their being blessed and being a... Um, being a light to the nations and, and drawing people from over the earth, from all over the earth. We did see that to a limited, a limited extent, but it didn't last. And we didn't see it to the full extent, which I think ties back into our discussion about near and far fulfillment or foreshadowing and actual fulfillment. Because we do see something like what God promised Israel in the reign of Solomon. And yet it wasn't it. It's just a, a step towards or a foreshadowing of the final kingdom that is described in Daniel, that is described in Isaiah, that is described in Jeremiah and Micah, the kingdom of Messiah that will come and that will have total dominion of the earth, that will put the knowledge and the law of God everywhere, but more importantly and strikingly will result in the forgiveness of sins. So that was foreshadowed, but the ultimate fulfillment has not yet come. All right, any, maybe one more question or comment? Okay, if you think of anything else, you can always email me. I know that when you talk about Daniel, you can always definitely generate a lot of questions. But God gave this to us to understand. He gave it to us to reveal mysteries. I, I feel pain in my heart when people say, oh, you know, prophecy is about the future. You can't really understand them. They're all, they're all confusing. Well, I recognize there's, there's some difficulties in understanding prophecies about the future. And yet, Daniel 2 has made known to us that God is the revealer of mysteries. He's made known the secret things. He's giving wisdom. So that would be silly for God to say. Actually, Isaiah says something similar. God is the one who makes the matter, makes the future known before it happens. That's what makes him so amazing. But that'd be kind of silly if we said all that about God and then be like, oh, you can't understand it. It's incomprehensible. No, God gave it to us to, to benefit us and so that we can understand it. Can be difficult to understand, but it's given for us to understand. So we have some hope there. As we consider some application for today, here are just some questions to get you started. These are, this is not exhaustive, but certain things for you to think about. Number one, when you consider your life, or the world circumstances, especially with new president, things happening in the world, do you take comfort in God's control? I heard someone say recently, things are never truly falling apart. They are actually falling into place. And that's true when you consider God's sovereignty. So do you meditate on the sure coming of Messiah's kingdom? Does that give you comfort? Does that motivate you to your obedience each day? It was meant to motivate Israel. It was meant to give them hope. Do you take the same hope for yourself? Number two, are you one of the most highest holy ones? Will you indeed receive the kingdom? Or will you be cast out of it and judged with the kingdoms of the earth? Because only those who have recognized their own sinfulness, who have repented and have believed in Jesus as Lord and Savior, have citizenship in Messiah's kingdom. So have you, have those you know, made peace with the Messiah? We must do this before it's too late. And then number three, God emphasizes in Daniel again and again that God is the giver of wisdom and the revealer of mysteries. Are you thankful that God has revealed his mysteries to you through his word? We could not discover this on our own. There's no innate wisdom in us. Our wisdom is received by God, just as it was by Daniel. Do you take advantage of this? Do you diligently study and apply the word? Or 
Do you take God's revelation lightly, preferring your own wisdom and the wisdom of the world? Or do you even slander God's word by calling it or treating it as unnecessary, incomprehensible, or downright deceptive? May we, like Daniel, bless the Lord for revealing his wisdom to us and apply it into our lives. That's it for today. Next week, we're back in the book of Ezra, and we'll see just what happened in the years after Zerubbabel and the first holy generation. Let's close in prayer. God, we thank you for this word. You have amazingly made known to us the future as you made it known to Daniel, as you made it known to the people of Israel going back into the land. God, we know what's going to happen. And you've made it even clearer, not just from the succeeding revelations in Daniel, but in what your son declared while he was on the earth and in what the apostles declared, and especially what John declared. We know what's going to happen. We don't have to be ignorant. We don't have to be fearful. We know that though injustice and evil increases, it will be put to an end. Lord Jesus, you will come. You will establish your kingdom on the earth, and your saints will be brought into it, and they will rule and reign with you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for giving us such an inheritance, for drawing us into your kingdom, for delivering us from slavery to sin and from wrath. Lord God, I pray that you would cause us to persevere for the sake of your kingdom, in light of your kingdom, thinking about it, and looking to be faithful to you until you come. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Thanks, guys. I will see you next week.